This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Movable Boss Fight. Science fiction cinema of the Watergate era. Mystery Flesh Pit National Park. And Valais du Amanasser. In Sunset City, there's always something fishy going on, and we're not talking tuna. Normally, good neighbors are suddenly stealing jewels, kidnapping kitties, and blackmailing the mayor. The magical kitties of Sunset City have their paws full. That's why they've formed the Cat Eyes Detective Agency. Because even though human detectives are pretty good at their jobs, sometimes it takes magic to uncover what's really going on in this town. Magical kitties save the day is the family favorite role-playing game for all ages. I am so excited about this, I have to break character. <laughs> you know I love cats and noir. Atlas Games adds mystery and intrigue to your game with the Kitty Noir hometown. Are there scritches? Do the cats get scritches? Kitty Noir has players explore a whole new detective series or throw in a mystery that any visiting kitty can uncover. Okay, but is it really noir? Kitty Noir takes its inspiration from classic film noir and crime movies from the 1930s to the 1950s and from Golden Age science fiction stories of time travel. Someone has frozen the city in time inside a magical bubble, and they don't want anyone to know about it. And it's now on Kickstarter, you say? You said that, but you are correct. Hmm. Are there any other new magical kitty treats I can add to my collection? Well, there's the new Game Master Kit, too. Yeah, it's got a sturdy GM screen, plus a handy poster of kitty breeds to help you pick your perfect kitty character. Don't you mean my perfect kitty character? Uh, if you keep that up, I won't mention the full-size poster map of Sunset City. Find Magical Kitties Noir on Kickstarter from March 28th to April 27th, 2023. Learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted, friendly confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we are looking at the old uh, clock on the wall. Maybe it's a digital clock. Maybe it's the old clock moved down from the kitchen after the kitchen got a new digital clock. But either way, the clock says we've only got an hour left before... The end of the session. And you know what that means, Robin? It means out come the big miniatures, the ones that make an extra thump. We may be out of Doritos, but we are not out of the woods. And that raises your question in which you ask, is that kosher? Is that cool to just make sure that the boss fight happens on schedule, as it were, without regard to the fictive facts on the fictive ground? Question mark, etc. So this is a question, of course, of the implicit contract. You could make the contract explicit and like ask your players, in which case you can just fast forward to the mm -hmm. next yeah. segment, except that what people articulate and what they actually want are often two different things, which is what I think makes the question of uh, the implicit contracts interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've been thinking a lot recently about choice and building choice into scenarios and one of the things that makes the dungeon, you may think of the dungeon merely as an environment, but in fact, it is also 
a scenario structure. And it has been the strongest, most robust, most continuing, most popular scenario structure since the founding of this particular... We're going on 50 years. <laughs> 50 years. Uh, because, in part, it is very robust and allows the players by moving through an environment. And of course, the environment doesn't literally have to be an underground environment full of doors and stuff. It can be any scenario that is built around systematically exploring and clearing and controlling an area. But one of the things that's very strong about it is it allows the players to feel a strong sense of choice. And their choice of where to go next is, what door do I open? Mm -hmm. And so the question is, to what extent... Are you, I guess not even the GM, but the DM, the dungeon master, mm -hmm. are you obligated to honor that sense of choice by not tipping your hand or not switching around the contents of, of the rooms? Will people care? Because on one side, the choice is not meaningful if, you know, they always know that the last door they open with an hour to go is the big fight of the the night it's nine o'clock everyone ready on your spells your choice doesn't matter now mm -hmm. <laughs> whatever door you open is the door or are you gonna you know let the let the dice fall where they may and you know after we answer that question we'll i guess wonder whether that is a interesting question or one we need to work around but what do you feel ken about this hardcore tradition of what's behind the door is what you've written down in your notes versus I care more about delivering the fun than about whether this final choice matters or not. I think that it very much depends on what sort of game the players want out of the dungeon. There are people, uh, there were people from the beginning of the hobby, there are people now, there are people just beginning D&D, the kids, who believe that a dungeon is in some way a tactical challenge or a strategic challenge made up of a number of tactical challenges, more correctly, and that... There is an order to be figured out. There are clues based on who built the dungeon or the things in the dungeon. There's an ecosystem to involve yourself in. There are myriads of incoming pieces of information that you, the dungeoners, the party, have to figure out and navigate. And because that is the main goal of the game is that tactical challenge or that series of tactical challenges, negating any of those nerfs the point of the game. And in a game like that, it is absolutely contract breaking and it is absolutely wrong to go ahead and move uh, the boulette from the room surrounded by smooth uh, stone shafts to the room they're opening at 901. And I think that that is as uncontrovertible a statement as one can make about dungeons and or dragons and or F20 role playing in general. Right. And even people who don't care about the tactics of it or the primacy of their choice that may have another issue, which is suspension of disbelief, right? That they want the dungeon to feel like a real imaginary environment, as paradoxical mm -hmm. as that is that uh, they can rely upon to, you know, when they poke it, it pokes back and it has a certain logic to it. So even if they're not, they may be, you know, storytellers, they may yeah. be the, the, the druid character who's most interested in composing a ballad about whatever's on the other side of the door. But, if what's on the other side of the door uh, is a, you know, a Schrodinger's dragon, as it were, they might also sort of get bummed. So it's it's also some storytelling players, I yeah. think, who will object to this. And this is true of, you know, the sort of the puzzle players, intellectual uh, sort of tourists, people who are trying to world build or world build with you will often object 
to arbitrary choices for drama, not just in the dungeon, but the dungeon is where it will show up most starkly. So I think it is absolutely incumbent on ideally everyone, but certainly the DM, as we are putting them now, to know what the goal or the goal of the majority of the party or the goal of really if one member of the party, one player is really into this, it kind of nerfs their fun, even if the other players are loosey-goosey and are like, well, narratively, there should be a monster now type players because, you know, those kinds of players can generally be entertained at other times during the story. And you should be able, if players are feeding narrative play, to build to a narrative climax, even if it isn't a fight climax, that there could be something else that happens an hour before that, you know, you have the, uh, you know, the paladin and the ranger get into a squabble over, you know, morals and ethics of dungeon crawling. And that's the big drama that's the throwdown. And everyone knows it's because the paladin and the ranger used to date and they're just having this conversation to cover up their still uh, smoldering love for each other. And that becomes the big drama. But players who are interested in drama, if you're going into a dungeon with a, a puzzle, a tactical, a world builder, bring your drama, do your drama an hour in so that you still get that fun without ruining the fun of the other players. And again, I really feel like a dungeon or a haunted house or something that, that has an inherent, you know, logic assumed to it. It's important to do that. Now, if you're talking about Planescape or Ravenloft or some world governed by arbitrariness or drama, then absolutely, you know, it's nine o'clock in the game. No doubt it's the witching hour, you know, between two and three in the morning when uh, the graveyards are, are full of spooks and specters. Uh, that happens to be when you're running around some graveyard in Ravenloft. And sure enough, here comes the big monster. And that's satisfying because you're in a world that is driven by the rules of drama. And so you can replicate those rules at your table and everyone's copacetic and happy. And even the the puzzly, strategic-y, world-building player is saying, well, we're in Planescape. We're in Ravenloft. This is the puzzle that I'm trying to work out is how to, how do the rules of drama interact with the rules of geography or monster ecology or whatever else you, you think is important, right? Right. Because the dungeon, although, you know, it's right in the, the name mm-hmm. of the premier F20 game, it's not the only structure for an F20 party to go through. So you could have, for example, the chain of fights style scenario where the GM has chosen which fights will occur. And then there's a bunch of interstitial plot material to get you from fight A to B and from B to C and those escalate. And there's a big dramatic fight at the end. And as long as everybody going in sort of has that idea, it is no long, it is not a cheat to have the big fight at the end. You know that that's baked into the premise. Right. And so no one is going to object to that. And so if your concern, I think, is to always have a big boss fight at the end, and that's what your players want, you, I think, want to detach a bit from the dungeon environment. You could have a chain of fights in a dungeon by sort of saying, and there's a bunch of other rooms you look at, and then you get to this room, right? Right. So that you can have the physical description of a dungeon without the structure of a dungeon adventure. Another thing that you could do is leave it up to the choice of the players as to what to do by having clues that signal which is the big environment that has the big fight in it and which one is, you know, probably just sort of a a side bit of looting. You know, you could literally make this the size of the doors, right? At the very end of the corridor, you see this massive door with columns and it's 
shod in brass and has the emblem of the uh, Lord of Dragons on it. And uh, oh, and, and over to your left is this sort of rickety wooden door. Yeah. <laughs> and that then allows the players to go, well, I wouldn't mind a big fight, but look at our hit points. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're out of spells and stuff. Why don't we just, you know, it's not the most exciting one, but let's clear out this side door as our last thing. And, you know, if we get that, knock that off 20 minutes early, we'll just have more time to chat about the latest Star Trek episode at the end. Right. And so that leaves the choice in their hands. So then if they don't pick the big dramatic fight with an hour to go, well, they can't complain (laughs) that you didn't give it to them. And it's very much within the tropes and assumptions of the world that the importance of the fight could be signaled by the uh, dungeon environment, whether it's literally the size of the door or not. You can also have the sort of the uh, have your cake and eat it too solution that again goes back to the earliest days is the wandering monster. And so even if you don't have the big fight with the Lord of Dragons, maybe it's 901 and you start putting your thumb on the scale of the wandering monster role. And that is the sort of compromise solution. Certainly if you're in a wilderness hex crawl adventure, you have no beef coming if you crest a hill and down there is oh look at that it's the great you know dark forest of the of the giant spider monster and yeah okay we saw that coming we are in the forest anything can happen uh and if you're in a dungeon with a robust wandering monster ecology as many of them have then maybe that you go to the bottom of the monster table and you find the biggest wandering monster and uh, they get attacked by that boulette and he, you know, comes slooping through the stone wall because he smelled them uh, carrying all this bloodstained gold around. And he says, uh, that's that's just caviar to us boulettes or truffles. The, the notion of a truffle sniffing boulette is kind of fascinating to me. I could <laughs> that ought to be another segment. Speaking of um, uh, spending the rest of the segment talking about things that aren't the game. But I feel like, you know, a wandering monster exists to offer that opportunity to parties and GMs. And uh, that if you have, again, this is sort of the halfway mark between the pure dungeon of call and response and the pure nonsense of Planescape, that in the middle is the wandering monsters and the wandering monsters will probably tend to show up when things are boring or when characters let their guard slip or whatever. And nine o'clock is a no more or less arbitrary choice than uh, Steve is not paying attention. This is an excellent time. And and the only time that you can't use that element, which is absolutely part of the social contract of, of a dungeon is if the players have been going to extreme lengths to be sneaky and move around carefully and Mm -hmm. not, uh, call the attention of wandering monsters. Well, then they but get again, a surprise round against the boulette. It yeah. doesn't see them at all. It's snorkeling around and they can uh, jump on him. Right. But to the extent that they are trying really hard to have things not happen, <laughs> again, they can't complain when they don't. And yeah. the right. trick there is to, and I think this is also another segment, perhaps not as interesting as truffle bullets, how to make people feel a sense of triumph when due to their careful efforts and work, nothing happens. Yeah. But I guess in this case, it's just as simple as, oh, you hear snurfling down the other corridor and, oh, we all freeze. We make our rolls. And then, you know, you make the snurfling sound uh, frightening and suitably bullet-like. And then they feel that they've, you know, gotten accomplishment from that. And I guess that's sort of the ultimate button on the end of this is that what the players want from your end moment uh, ideally, 
uh, if things go well for them, is a sense of accomplishment. And that yeah. accomplishment can be a big boss fight and winning that, or it can be avoiding the boss fight or, you know, discovering the scroll or so. So I guess part of this also is to have some other sort of either cliffhanger or development or thing happen in your back pocket that's just as exciting a note to end on as, you know, killing a big boss monster. Yeah, and especially if you've got the general story of your campaign is sort of being overlapped or written by you onto a pre-existing dungeon, whether it's a dungeon that you designed for some other game or it's a dungeon you bought from one of the many fine dungeon uh, retailers that you often will be thinking where, how can I tie this dungeon into my campaign? And, you know, it can be things like an inscription on the wall or a, a map that they find or a different clue to some other thing in your bigger game or a prisoner chained up in a room behind a rickety door or something like that. And that nugget of tying the dungeon into your campaign may be the sense of accomplishment that they feel that, oh, this wasn't just a waste of our time, modestly compensated by delicious smelling gold. It's also an opportunity to move the bigger story ahead. And by rescuing this halfling or by, you know, finding this old inscription, we've figured out, oh, this is where the, the, the air wizard breathed his last. We've solved that. We can now do another thing. And so uh, what do I want to say? A story beat treasure, I guess, is the thing. But a, a bigger campaign story beat treasure, not just one for the individual dungeon, is another thing that you can think about slotting in there at the, at the last minute to give them a, a realization, right? It's, it's a, maybe it's not even a, a fight it, or it's just someone rolls uh, insight and figures it out. Or ideally the players figure it out when they're talking about what could these runes mean? What's going on? Right. And, and the more that the players want a set environment that feels real to them, that they are interacting with on their terms and making the choices, the more they are going to forgive the occasional evening where you just go, well, you open up that door and it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of dusty inside and there's some rats and, uh, you know, in the distance you hear insane laughter, you pull out your best cliche and then that's the end of the session. session. Yep. And they should be fine with that because that's the, the contract that they asked you to enforce. And on that note, I think the contract that we have on this show is that we have exciting commercials that lie in between our segments Let's hear one now. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. They can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. Hey, 
It's time once more to head on into the uh, theater where we check out the science fiction cinema essentials. This time around, uh, in installment 11, it's looking a little gray on the outside. It's perhaps a, a somewhat brutalist movie house. And uh, we're going to head on in, and there's cigarette smoke wafting up into the uh, light of the projector because we're definitely can in the early 70s, and we're, we've hit the malaise era, mm. uh, not only of American culture, but of that sense of uh, Watergate and its moments before Watergate, where we sort of feel like Watergate is coming, are beginning to seep pretty thoroughly into uh, cinema in general. This is the time of the American New Wave. And even into the relatively genrefied precincts of science fiction cinema. And we're going to start with a film that we've mentioned before, because this is the second cinematic version of I Am Legend. Uh, this is The Omega Man from 1971, directed by Boris Segal. And uh, can you have a bit more of a... This, I, I don't think either of us thinks this is an essential. You have a bit more of a soft spot for it uh, than I do, so you're going to tell people what it's all about. Yeah, once more, we have Robert Neville as the last man on Earth, he thinks, and discovers that there are mutants or monsters out there. Uh, in this case, it is uh, straight-up biological warfare has caused the last man on Earth situation, so it's tied into tensions of the day. Charlton Heston, of course, is Robert Neville, and I I like Heston's performance in this movie. I'll I'll just straight up and say it. He fits the, the Neville character. He fits the way that they're doing Matheson's story, and the visuals of the sort of the albino mutant vampire monsters, it's very good. It's, you know, not as lush as the Italian version that we talked about earlier, but it is a strong aesthetic. It's not just sort of going through the motions. And that's one of the things that I uh, enjoy about this specific iteration is that it commits to the bit as strongly as the Italian one, but it commits in its own vernacular and it just doesn't happen to be as maybe as well handled as the first version, but it's still absolutely worth watching if you're an I Am Legend stan. And the Lord knows you uh, are going to suffer enough if you watch the Akiva Goldsman version, so it's nice to have this one to fall back on. You know, we talked about it being the 70s. This is explicitly uh, set in the uh, 70s, so it's sort of an indictment of the uh, onrushing culture of individualist hedonism that the people see coming out. Neville is definitely an anti-hero sort of a figure, not quite as much as he is in the novel, but again, Heston's jut-jawed heroism does not obscure the fundamental sort of darkness and questionability of his character. Right. And the other humans he finds eventually are, are very counter-culture-y, uh -huh, very yeah. of their moment. And I think the thing that prevents this from being a full essential is that the execution is a little ramshackle in that 70s way. Where somehow, I don't know whether it's quaaludes or <laughs> what mm -hmm. it is, but cinema in the 70s slows down. It's not quite as slow as 70s television became. <laughs> or as 2020s television is now. Now that is a different segment. But there's yeah. just scenes are slow. <laughs> and so it, it, it does have sort of a fun sort of, you know, gritty shot on location and almost sort of uh, echoes like the French connection in the way that the devastated city is uh, is portrayed i'm not sure i'm quite as in love with the design of the albino mutant vampires as, as you are and thematically it certainly fits what we're talking about because it is this is an era where we're beginning to imagine dystopias as the optimism of the 60s curdles uh, again the malaise of the 70s starts to set in and this is definitely one of those uh, movies next up we have another uh, recurring name director robert wise the uh, Andromeda Strain, based on a Michael Crichton novel. This is a uh, straight-up, well-executed, but I think not 
quite that remarkable bioengineered epidemic movie. So it's a disaster apocalypse uh, as well as a science fiction film. But I think this is the first of many pandemic movies. Right. It is certainly one of the ones in which the one of the first ones in which the pandemic is front and center as opposed to being the backdrop. I mean, we literally just talked about the Omega Man happening after pandemics. But it's not a movie about the pandemic. It's a movie about post-pandemic. This is a movie about the pandemic, about the onrushing horror of the disease. It's a thriller in that way. It's a medical thriller based on a Crichton novel. And again, everything you say is correct. It's it's competently done. You'll enjoy it while you watch it. I don't know that you'll remember a single shot. I think I remembered the rockets as is the is the visual that I carry away from it. The, that they begin the story with that the uh, they bring an alien germ down from space, and that's part of what it is the larger sort of you know question of of pandemics and disease becoming a big concern in the 70s is i think partly the notion of pollution and the ecology the question of the the earth becoming toxic which is you know blown up after uh, earth day and the environmental movement gets going also they just came out of a really bad pandemic the what they called the hong kong flu in 1968 had killed a lot of people and uh you know left bodies stacked in the berlin subway type deaths and i think that that was sort of on people's minds so maybe we'll see um some good pandemic cinema coming out uh, in the next couple of years, as people sort of begin to process what that did. Now we're going to get to a title that shows that behind all of cinema's great rah-rah populists lies a dark kernel of cynicism and doom. There's a darkness all the way through this director's work, actually. But in THX 1138, George Lucas's dystopian darkness fully comes out. This is a basically a story of Robert Duvall, uh, playing a dehumanized uh, person in this dehumanizing dystopia, which happens to have super cool cars because Lucas and his process of falling in love as an act of uh, rebellion against a totalitarian state. It is worth seeing. It is well executed, but I think just kind of falls short of that essentials mark unless you're, you know, a completist on the works of George Lucas. I mean, but if you are talking about American new wave cinema, this is one of the birthing lands of it. I mean, not just Robert Duvall, but also uh, Francis Ford Coppola produced it. It was written by Walter Murch or co-written by Walter Murch. It's all these figures that are going to blow up and take over American cinema in the next couple of years are working on this movie. And I think you can, you can sort of see a lot of that in Ovo more than you can see Star Wars, frankly, I would say. So yeah, it's, it's worth watching either as a Lucas completist or as a study of the American new wave in film, because most people will go with the easy writers and the dog day afternoons. And I think THX in a lot of ways, you know, is as important a component of that um, as those other perhaps better films. People do forget how big a part Lucas was of that crowd. Now we come to something that I think is fully an essential, even though it has some elements that are very of its time. <laughs> and that is Silent Running, uh, directed by Douglas Trumbull in 1972. This is once again, we're in deep space. Bruce Dern plays a crew member aboard a, a corporate ship that is uh, shipping the last forest somewhere off of Earth in the wake of an environmental disaster. And when he realizes that his corporate masters have changed their business plan and are going to jettison the forest, he instead jettisons the rest of the crew mm -hmm. and is left isolated on the, the ship trying to take this forest somewhere in this quixotic mission with a bunch of little stubby cute robots who play poker with him and are very much 
precursors of the droids in Star Wars. And I think the thing that elevates this to the true essential is its depiction of the isolation of uh, space and of the, the loneliness of that environment and the credibility of the sort of uh, hard science fiction ships and their design and, and the experience of being on the ship. The environmental message is, I think, less interesting than that other theme. And, uh, you know, the Joan Baez songs have perhaps not aged well, despite their uh, good environmental uh, intentions. But I think uh, this one definitely rises to the essential level. Yeah, this is absolutely an essential. The visual qualities of this film, the sort of the biodomes, the forests up against the blackness of space, the garden tended by the robots, all of these very, very stark, uh, perhaps, you know, beat you over the head with the symbolism level. But Trumbull makes it work visually, and you are carried into this this sort of weirdly pastoral vision of a dead future in, in a way that I think no film before or since has even tried to do maybe because silent running does it so well. I saw it, I think right about when it came out and I was probably too young to parse everything that was going on, but I, I caught it a lot of times on television afterward and it, it always works. Uh, the, just the sheer quality of the presentation of space, the, the attempts at, at hard realism and hard science, are, are very welcome and very strong. It's not just a sappy, you know, hippie movie. It's, it's about hard choices and it takes a moral stance uh, on a lot of questions in the way that the best science fiction does. It's a tremendous science fiction piece. It is a visually stunning and I think involving movie. It pulls you into it, even despite Joan Baez and it rewards watching, you know, now just as much as it did in 1972 it's a movie made by a guy who was mad that all the spaceships looked like garbage and said, I can do better than that. And by God, did he. And now we're going to move away from America for a couple of films, but not away from Malays. <laughs> the Malays is everywhere. Malays is everywhere, especially in the Soviet Union, because we've uh, reached Solaris by Andrei Tarkovsky. And this is another uh, deep space film. It's based on a Stanislaw Lem novel, and it is about a psychiatrist who is sent to a space station, which is orbiting the distant oceanic planet Solaris, and his assignment is to find out why the planet has driven everyone on the space station to mental breakdowns. And he finds out a little too readily because the psychic effect of that planet begins to uh, work its way on him and recreates his dead wife for him. But perhaps not quite satisfyingly because she knows she's his dead wife and isn't mm -hmm. happy about it. Yep. So this is both hard science fiction, but also a dreamlike mystical freakout movie. So very much in the uh, 2001 vein, it's something that'd be very much worth watching uh, for the first time in a theater, except there's an advantage to watching it at home on a big TV, which is that the five minute long shot, of the psychiatrist driving through Tokyo on the way to get his briefing here at the beginning is one that you can fast forward to after you get the point of that. I looked up how long that shot was thinking it was 20 to 30 minutes, but it's, <laughs> it's an interminable five minutes that feels well, like if, uh, if Tarkovsky does anything, he makes five minutes seem like an interminable 20 throughout his oeuvre. And uh, certainly Solaris, I recognize its value, but I would not watch it again for love or money. It is one of those things where surely I have a better thing to do with that nine hour spot in my weekend than watch Solaris once, in my opinion. It, it's a great film, and I think it's in many ways, you know, a more valuable movie ab about how people are than, you know, 
some other Tarkovsky movies, but by and large, some, some of the great films are not rewatchable. Yeah. Right. And I, I would put this very much in that category. We have uh, now a animated film from France called Fantastic Planet by Rene Laloux in 1973. Right. So this is based on a French science fiction novel from uh, 1957. The translated title would be Ohms Linked Together by a writer named Stefan Wool. And this is very trippy. I think that many people may have enjoyed it while on uh, various substances, some of which yeah, are now legal. Could have been. <laughs> in, in various jurisdictions. So it is... Adult science fiction, very trippy. The plot, such as it is, is sort of a background to the exploration and noodling around on this world. But to the extent there is a plot, it's about this race of indifferent advanced giants who brought these small, more human-like people to live on their world. And they, these people live in a sort of a, a tribal environment and are preyed upon by the supposedly advanced giants. There's a sort of a dark whimsy about all of it, and it is uh, a visual feast and sort of drops you, uh, because it is animated, not just into this alien world, but this alien uh, visual style. It's limited animation, so it's about the design of the figures and not about the quality of the animation per se, but is definitely a landmark in early 70s uh, lysergic cinema as well as science fiction cinema. And its uh, its score, if you are a fan of early Pink Floyd and that sort of proto-prog era, I think is is one that, you know, it, it works very well with the movie, works very well with your substances. I would also think it does that. And it has, you know, speaking of things that are very much of its time, this is as 70s as Joan Baez is 70s. But it has an interesting sort of, if you think of it as the next layer down from Forbidden Planet's all-electronic score in 1956, we are now trying to bring electronica back up into the music and see where we can make those uh, blends happen. And it matches the animation because that's literally the point of a movie like this. And it also, I think, sort of says something musically in a way that a lot of science fiction scores don't always do. So I don't know, listen to it on its own is necessarily my advice, but definitely when you're watching the movie, that's going to be part of the fun and part of the vibe and part of the drown you in it moment. Right. Right. And finally, speaking of Malays, I think the last one we're going to cover this segment is, is very full of Malays because it's about the horrible year 2022. This is the film where the most quoted line is a spoiler, and that is <laughs> Silent Green. Silent Green. Directed by Richard Fleischer from 1973. There's Richard Fleischer again. And so this is based on the novel Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison. It's a very loose adaptation, I understand. And this is very much coming out of the overpopulation fear and the idea that eventually, you know, uh, we're going to run out of resources. And it is also, for Gumshoe fans, a police procedural science fiction film because Charlton Heston is back again. This time he is investigating as a police officer a string of murders which are somehow related to the titular nutritional substance. It has some classic Hollywood actors in their later years, uh, Edward G. Robinson and also uh, Joseph Cotton is in it. And it is very much about uh, America becoming a dystopia, which somehow seemed very much on people's radar in 1973. Yeah, here's a case where, again, Charlton Heston is terrific in this movie. 70s Charlton Heston is generally a banger regardless, but he's great in this. 
the assisted suicide. This is your Robert Chambers suicide booth taken uh, into the 70s. And so the sort of, you know, you're surrounded by the vision of the of the world that is uh, as dead as you're going to be. It is, a you know, sort of a, a, a wonderful visual moment of the sort that Fleischer is an expert in. And then Fleischer's, I don't want to say pedestrian, but his relatively straightforward directing really sells the realism of the of the investigation of the you know dystopian future and of the story and i feel like a different director would have made this movie you know it, it would have come apart in those in sort of visual moments in a way that fleischer is able to guide you into and guide you back out of and continue the suspense on the other side of it uh, and so it becomes you know a uh, greater i think than the sum of its parts the great edward g robinson plays sort of the bad guy or not the bad guy really, but the guy who's sort of, you know, uh, driving uh, Charles Neston to find out he's, more. He's so. a mentor figure yeah. who retains all the world's dying knowledge. So it's sort of an, an avuncular provider of uh, exposition. Uh, Joseph Cotton is in it. Speaking of uh, characters from fifties films. And so there is that sense as well of the passing of the generations down that again, reifies sort of the history of this film and, and, and the lived reality of it. It's, uh, it's a better movie than it is a novel, which is, I don't know if that's the first time that this has happened in our essentials, but it's the first time it's been this obviously a better movie than a novel. And, you know, again, it's one of those movies you could watch today. And I feel like you could get almost as much out of it as people did in the theaters in 1973. It's still, you know, uh, to the extent it's relevant, it, it's still relevant because it's a story of, corruption in the name of doing good for other people and it's still absolutely gripping and thrilling because richard fleischer is good at uh, pulling you through a spectacle with a cool story and that's to an extent at the bottom of soylent green's success well a cinema takes a hairpin turn in the middle of the 70s and science fiction has everything to do with that and we'll see if we get to that next week as we continue our 70s science fiction essentials The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Buff this podcast against the boss fight of underfunding by joining such backers as... Phil Groff! Liz and Siski! Terry Robinson! Aryan Potsma! And Brian Malcolm!
Welcome once again to Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And today I, Ken, am talking to Christopher Robin Negeline, game designer, Floridian, and friend. Uh, Chris, you and I have been going to the Adventure Game Store events back in uh, the day when Brian was around to host them. And I think that's where we met. And you've worked on uh, Esper Genesis. Uh, what else have you worked on before we get to the big reveal, the excitement, the reason that you are talking to someone else, which is to say me, which is to say you? So uh, Esper Genesis is a science fiction game for 5E, complete new universe. It's the mastermind of a great friend of both of ours, Richard Luscofer. Uh, I was a contributing writer for that, and that got me down the rabbit hole of doing community content. I have a couple of 5E projects that are highly rated, but don't get much play because they are farther down the list. But it also got me into a game called Cypher, or the Cypher System by Mighty Cook. And for those who know Mighty Cook games, Mighty Cook worked for TSR as well as Bridges of the Coast. We're not interviewing Monty. Monty has his own <laughs> damn show, I'm he sure. Uh, speaking of having your own damn show, though, you also had like a video cast that I used to get interviewed on for you. Are you still running that, or did you... Uh, realized that running any kind of public-facing RPG video cast or podcast was a waste of everyone's valuable time. I wrapped that up after a while. Okay. So it seems like it is coming back in vogue. Right. Are the uh, archives available for anybody, or is it just a secret that only you and the dwarves share? I think there's a couple that are still out there, and I'll give you the links if you want later. Fantastic. Okay. So the current project that you've got that you're, you're teased by talking about working with Monty is a Cypher System game, mm-hmm. and it is a standalone game, not a supplement, right? Yes, what it is is Monty has opened up the Cypher System to a open license, in some degree, just like the open license for 5e and D&D. And he invited me to do that before it went public. And I also saw a really great website called the Mystery Flesh Pit National Park by uh, Trevor Roberts, who is an artist who's made this kind of world-building exercise for three years, the setup is a Texas oilman in the 1970s was drilling for oil and pulled up blood instead and discovered a cosmic horror right under his hometown of Gumption, Texas. So what does an enterprising oilman do when he doesn't have oil? He sells tickets to the Living Cavern. And then it became a national park. There's a mining interest involved. The whole website is kind of a very straight-laced bureaucratic satire of a cosmic horror. So it's sort of Laundry Files, SCP... And the game, is the game also uh, levels of comedy and irony layered onto terrifying death? Or is it a sort of more Delta Green, serious face type game? Well, as I started working on it, I'm using the Cypher system to do it with some slight, slight tweaks. I figured out I could do either. So part of my challenge has been kind of narrowing my focus because I can't do all the different things. In fact, one of your previous podcasts said, you know, sometimes you got to stick with what you're going for and other things have to be in sidebars. And I was like, Ken, that's great advice. Let's do that. Well, if I may contradict my own great advice, you and I are both fans of paranoia. And I think that's going to be another touchstone for the game, obviously. 100%. And I know that you know Paranoia XP by the great Alan Varney, which had the lenses mechanic that I stole for Knights Black Agents, in oh, which you yeah. play paranoia in certain tenors with certain rules turned on or off. Is that a mode you're looking at for Flesh Pit? Are you doing Flesh Pit basic and then maybe we'll do other modes later on? No, no. There are optional rules that tweak it. Um, in fact, the more mundane a horror game it could be, the more I suggest you add these optional rules 
to crank it up another level. We've had players that grimaced and laughed in the same game repeatedly between the horror aspect and the comedy aspect. So that's uh, that's the sweet spot you're aiming for then. Exactly. So you saw this website, one assumes during some horrific late night web crawling trawl or maybe a YouTube rabbit hole, you fell over the website and you said, this needs to be a role playing game. As so many of us have said about so many websites, did you know Trevor? Did you just email him cold? How did the, how did the process of turning a late night bad idea on YouTube into a game? Where, where was the middleman in that? What happened? Well, I had an extra motivation because that was when Monty Cook Games reached out to me and said, Hey, we would like you to be one of the first adopters of this license. And then I saw the YouTube rabbit hole. There's like several of them for the mystery flesh pit. And I said, this is a perfect fit. And I emailed him cold with a very straightforward email of my goals, what I thought he would want to know and be on the same page with, and then crossed my fingers. And his answer back was, do I personally want to do a role-playing game? No, because that's not my expertise, but I know lots of my fans do. So let's keep talking. Oh, fantastic. So he was familiar with the medium, but is he, is he not a gamer and you're translating for the gamer mind? To him or... Oddly enough, we haven't really talked about his gaming background, mm-hmm. but I have a feeling that, you know, he at least appreciates it. He tried to do a, a video Kickstarter and that kind of uh, fell to the wayside with the people he was working with, though there was a amicable parting for that. Mm-hmm. But no, he seems very excited about doing this. Uh, he says that, you know, it's, it looks like it's going to be a great experiment, fail or succeed. And I'm like, I'm a little more motivated, motivated <laughs> to succeed. Yes. Fail or succeed is what you say when it's not your Kickstarter. Exactly. Right? Uh, good luck with that, I believe, is is the other version. So dates will be in the show notes, I'm sure. And the basic package is what? Just a core book? Are there stretch goals? What are the stretch goals? Are there more flesh pits? Is there like a giant eye somewhere in Wisconsin? <laughs> Tell us about, you know... How deep does the flesh pit go, I guess? So, uh, according to the very in-depth website he has for this whole world building, there's hints there are other flesh pits, which opens up even more opportunities. But this is going to be, I would say, like baby's first Kickstarter. So, it's going to be straightforward. It's going to be print on demand. But it's going to be a thick book with a lot of different options and rules in the package, as well as some other suggestions of things you can do with it, because it can be its own horror setting on its own. It's a fantastic world exercise. But uh, if there's a stretch goal situation, just making the book bigger and thicker, it's not... Exactly. I guess bigger and thicker is sort of the leitmotif of the mystery <laughs> flesh bit, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. So what kind of response have you got? I know you're playtesting it. You're running it here at Anyone's Game, the Protospiel in sunny Sarasota, Florida at Ringling College. Is this the first time you've been running oh, no. mystery flesh bit? You've been running in other places. I saw you at GameholeCon passing out flyers for the flesh pit, which, by the way, wonderful. Did you run at GameholeCon as well? How long have you been uh, tweaking and playtesting? What's the design process been? So uh, with uh, the Cypher Open Game License, uh, Cypher is a multi-genre book, and they give you, like, in the open license, like 90% of the book. So it's more a process of flensing out what you don't need mm-hmm. and then kind of narrowing that. And I also cranked up some things to 11 to enhance the horror aspect. But I've been playtesting it at the Adventure Game Store, which is still around, as well as different conventions. And uh, so far, the response has been good. I was very flattered today that somebody was like, this Kickstarter is going to blow up. This is a great game. It's a great universe. Why has not someone done this already? So universal acclaim, no uh, shifts in guidance or direction for you. You 
bullseye right out of the box. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Just because people say they enjoy something, the next thing I say is I want some feedback. Right. So there is always some fine tuning. So what kind of fine, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about the process. You have this very in-depth, crazy world with its own wonderful lore. And obviously porting that into the book is a relative no-brainer. You got the cipher system, which is fairly robust, obviously, you know, many thousand, hundreds of thousands of hours of play by now. You're melding the one to the other. What's the process like? I mean, is it just laundry files, but in a flesh pit? Tell us about some of the sort of mechanical meat choices that you've made that make Cypher good for this or that make this sort of tuned uh, to be its own game as opposed to just gross Numenera. So I have my nickname on the process has been Mice, Cats, and Dogs. And that's kind of three main modes I've noticed you can play with Mystery Flesh Pit. Mice is a fugitive mode. If the exposure to the pit or something has give you a, given you a mutation, which is explained and given a definition, many more and more towards words that you know, are bureaucratic and the flavor of the game, and you're being chased down by the anodyne corporation or the government. The cats is the flip side. You are the veil-out team. You're going to erase all existence of something that happened when somebody drank heartthrob cola and had a allergic, hear, hear my air quotes, reaction that did something horrific. And then the dog is more like a work dog in that you're working for the corporation. You're doing like search and rescue of tourists who are hikers in the bronchial forests of the flesh pit. And yes, there is a forest of lungs that you can travel in. And so this is a sort of alien meets damage control, basically. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, a nice little kind of uh, siloing is work dogs is kind of like blue-collar aliens. Of course, aliens is kind of blue-collar. Well, that's literally the point. Exactly. <laughs> and then the cats would be like, you're playing the MIBs, the men in black, or person in black, as I have it right. in my game. And then the mice is just, like I said before, fugitives on the run. But is there a mechanical uh, choices that you have to make to alter between those? Is it just a matter of number of starting points? What's the element of cipher or of, um, I don't suppose you need a lot of nerd troping for your, the search and rescue guys in the flesh pit, but is there more stuff going on? 100%. So you would think like the search and rescue guys in the flesh pit would be the most straightforward, but the mechanic I use to really kind of bring it up to where it would be for like laundry files is you have a stat called conformity. Uh, you know, sanity's tired. We've all done sanity before. No disrespect to beautiful Delta Green, Call of Cthulhu. But the idea is if you've been working all day inside giant intestines and brain cells and there's not a straight line and not a corner to be seen, when you get back to your cubicle, you want everything to be nice and perfect and straight. You know, you have an urge to fill out a form or if you get your suit damaged, there may be still screaming down the hall, but you have this urge to break out your pen and your form and fill things out in triplicate despite what you really want to do, which is run. Right. So it's uh, it's sort of a bureaucratic paralysis, but uh, in the moment, as opposed to just uh, in the system. Exactly. And Cypher has a natural part of their game called the GM Intrusion, which allows the GM to bribe the players with a goodie. I call it great. It's called XP and Cypher General to have them go along with it. Or if they really don't feel comfortable doing it, instead of like an X card, they may say, here's an XP I give. We don't want to do this. We just want to move on. When it comes to the veil out and things like that, I have mutations. And in the version I have, they come with a level of corruption. There's not really a corruption system in Cypher per se, but basically as you keep using your power, you have, you're going to get 
extra problems and mutations that are not beneficial to the point you become an NPC. Now, when people do that in a regular game, whether you're under stress or not under stress, it's pretty much kind of the same odds. In uh, Cypher, you have a thing called horror mode, which also is a void mode, which starts making your malfunctions happen more and more often. So that can accelerate processes. Similar to panic in the alien RPG. Yes, exactly. Right. right. So the man has met moment, basically. Cypher seems like it would be a pretty strong engine to do that. Is there any, I mean, you've had to, like you say, introduce corruption. Is there any other fine tuning to the specific property that you've needed to do? Or is this literally just a matter of translating flesh gobbit one and <laughs> flesh gobbit two and large flesh gobbit? There's a little bit of in-between where I've gamified a few things in the lore and a little bit of where I've kind of tweaked the game to fit the lore a little bit better. In Mystery Flesh Pit, there aren't any superhero-type mutations, not anything that's public. So Cypher innately is a more heroic action RPG. So I kind of had to tampen things down, make things more tight. Uh, when you get a power, usually in Cypher, it comes as a power. It's great. I've made it where you may have to test yourself that you don't accidentally damage yourself or right. uh, you're trying to do some R&D project and you put on some goggles and they may stick to your face. Right. Later. Much worse than the goggles that do nothing. So the project is the Mystery Flesh Pit National Park role-playing game, I'm assuming. You get a book and it's going to be a big book and it's going to be full of pictures of open wounds, as I understand <laughs> it. So if you play Cypher, you want to look at that. If you're into the Mystery Flesh Pit already... Why didn't you tell me about it before Christopher did? But also, you can look at that then. And just if you're looking at using uh, Cypher for other sorts of designs, this is yet another attempt to push the boundaries out and add uh, some of that iterative grossness back into a uh, Monty's uh, clean, heroic, beautiful system. So uh, Grateful Nation salutes you, Chris. Thanks for coming on the program. No, And thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. <laughs> Mystery Flesh Pit National Park Kickstarter goes live on April 18th, but follow the link in the show notes to sign up ahead of time to get told when it goes live, which is April 18th. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. 
It's time once more to stagger into that most ill-defined of huts, the hut where the paranormal meets uh, crank history. We're not really sure where all the defining lines are, but we can look out the window and hear the alien big cat screaming on the moor, and particularly, uh, wearing particularly swanky cool robes this time around, we have the Nordic alien and the gray alien uh, sitting up to attention, because Ken, at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Ed Sizemore, we're going to look at the Valley de Amanacer, the Valley of the Dawn, or Sunrise Valley, which is a, a syncretic spiritual movement from Brazil that uh, has, among its many strains, a big strain of UFO uh, cult. Ed asks, have the fungi from Yogoth formed a cult and gone public? And let's just spoil this right up front. This is not the fungi from Yogoth, because these people are, are pretty cool and nice and chill. Yeah. And so they're going to be your protagonists, or, you know, they're going to be allied with the protagonists. At worst, so, they'll be the innocent victims of some inborn alien species that is doing bad things. But this is not the Order of the Yellow sign that, that runs around and messes with anybody. This is the Order of the cool outfit that hangs out in Brazil and tries to make things just a tiny bit better in the hellish conurbation of Brasilia, which is where it's located. It's in a sort of a, 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 a suburb or a ring community called Plan Altina, which is on the outskirts of Brasilia, and was founded by a woman named Neva Chavez Zelaya, who, having been widowed, became a truck driver driving trucks as they were constructing Brasilia in the late 50s. And she, you know, got to the degree where she had two trucks, so she was at least somewhat successful. But from whatever purpose, she began to have mediumistic communications in 1959 and initially did not approve of them being a good Catholic. But Brazil is nothing if not a place where syncretic religions bubble up. And so she consulted the Brazilian Spiritist Church, which is a big, huge church, said, well, they're wrong about it, too. It must be that something else is going on. And it was around this time that an Incan warrior named Seta Branca, a uh, white arrow, that's his Portuguese name. I'm sure he had an Incan name, uh, which I don't know. And maybe Neva Zelaya didn't know it. But she learned to astrally project. She learned sort of the rudiments of being a uh, an adept. Uh, she bilocated herself once she could astrally project and uh, went off to Tibet to uh, train with a monk named Umaha no relation to the town in Nebraska, where you learn relatively little about bilocation. And then, having gathered up all of her knowledge, founded the Uniao Espiritualista Seta Branca in 1964. Elsewhere in the federal district, it sort of moved around until they got their permanent location at the Valley of the Dawn in 1969. Um, she had about 300 true believers in this early period, and that became the nexus of a, a new religion, as people call it in American universities, uh, that now has as many as 800,000 followers, although I think the group's website says closer to 140,000. So who can say? The uh, religion is approved by the Brazilian government. It's an official religion, which is a process in Brazil. And its tenets believe that there are alien giants called Equitumans. They're also known as the Jaguars. Uh, they landed 32,000 years ago, somewhere in the Andes, probably. And they returned in incarnations as the Hittites, the Dorians, the Ionians, the Egyptians, the Spartans, the Romans, the Mayans, the Incas, and so on and so on. So the Aquatumans would keep being reborn into new bodies and either try to uplift the society around them 
or be, you know, battered down by the world's cargo of evil. And currently, the Valley of the Dawn is where the Equituman reincarnators are gathering. The Equituman alien bodies, if you're looking, are under Lake Titicaca. And it is here in the Valley of the Dawn that they have begun their great work in the, well, now in the 21st century, beginning the 20th century. They started a school. They got incorporated as a municipality. Tia Nieva dies in 1985. She's succeeded by her son, Gilberto, whose spirit name is Trino Ahara. He is the first doctrinator of the dawn, which is a cool title. Uh, and Sunrise Valley now sort of has a bunch of ritual architecture, there's a big main temple that's a six-pointed star called the Glowing Star. It's on a lake called the Lake of Yamaya. Yamanya is a an a oceanic or water entity or goddess uh, from the, the Orisha religions, basically from West Africa, as practiced in Brazil by Candomblé, Umbanda, and other religions like that. So there's a big element of that. They got a pyramid where you can sleep to recover your psychic edge, I guess. They have a bunch of sculptures. They have an arrow-shaped bridge. They have a bookstore, which is, I think, a sign of a good religion. If you got bookstores, I'm on your team already, and I would uh, not countenance any uh, fungi from your chat at that point. There's 200 students at their school. They have 300 more residents in that little Sunrise Valley complex. Most of those residents are mediums. And the mediums are in two kinds. There is the uh, aparas, who are reception mediums, and they take spirits into them. And the doctriners, or devas, who teach the spirit the doctrine, the, what's, going, what's really going on, and then they send those spirits back out into the spiritual world, all purified and good. And that's a really interesting twist on the mm -hmm. whole ch channeling thing, because normally the spirits are the ones conveying the information. But here, the spirits require the information, and so you're proselytizing not only people, but spirits in the spirit realm who are presumably going to go and tell other spirits about this. Right, because the Equitumans are the guys who know the real truth, and so if you're just some poor spirit from Earth, you might not know it, and it's very important that you carry it up to the spirit realm and, and share the Equituman knowledge. There's another 20,000 people in that surrounding community. It refreshes itself not just by pilgrims and people coming to learn and to spiritually purify themselves, but also there's a bunch of abandoned kids in Brasilia and a place you can put them where they will not be tortured and abused is the Valley. And uh, that's what they do. So they take them in and then they bring them up in the teachings of their church. There's lots and lots of uh, visitants, which is what they call people who come seeking healing or answers to problems. And that's probably why there's the difference in numbers, right? It's right. Like the yeah. largest number is anybody who's ever come as a visitant, mm -hmm. and then the smaller number is the regular practitioners. Or the communicants of the of the faith, at any rate. Right. And so the, the visitants get workings, or trabalos, as they're called, and it heals their wounded spirit, which has been wounded in a past life. And so... You figure out what happened to you in a past life, and then you make it right by asking other jaguars to sort of sign a little IOU that says, yes, I will help heal your spirit. And then everyone, you know, has a good prey. And right, because they're malign spirits, right, who are, who yeah. are debt collectors. Mm -hmm. And they're going to come around and enforce karma unless you're cleansed. Right. And, and so, you know, what do you got if you've got, you know, a spiritual loan shark on you? Well, you have to go to a kindly rich spirit such as the jaguars. And that's what they maintain is this immense sort of bank of spiritual currency that can be used to pay off your debt. And so what you do is you acknowledge what the, the debt collector spirit wanted, what karmic bad thing happened to open you up. 
and you sort of uh, get that off your chest and you can move on with your spiritual debt paid off. And that's fundamentally what the working does, although they also have other sorts of, you know, just straight up, you know, herbal cleanses and, you know, they, you know, smoke wood and wave it on you and, and do all the other sorts of new age healing practices and basic new age medical understanding of the spiritual body, because this sort of corpus of belief in the uh, Valley of the Dawn draws on everything. It draws on Kabbalism. It draws on, as I mentioned, Umbanda and Candomblé. It draws on ancient Egyptian you know, rights as past one assumes There's through of theosophy, various theosophists well. and new age people. And so it, it, it's a, it's got a sort of a pragmatic, I, I hate to say it's wild to say pragmatic about people who dress up in these sort of amazing equitumen LARP costumes and the pictures of these guys in their regalia is, is, is quite striking, but it, it's got a sort of a pragmatic approach to it in a lot of ways. There is a scholar from Indiana University, Purdue University. There's apparently a co-university of that a woman named Kelly Hayes, who has studied the Valley of the Dawn. And according to her, there's no skeevy underside. There's no sexual exploitation. There's no weird cult hierarchy where someone gets all the, you know, coconut water and other people don't get anything. People can leave the valley if it's not for them. So it doesn't have that sort of cut you off from your friends and family level that, that cults do. So, so on the believer charlatan scale that we sometimes look at in mm-hmm. consulting uh, cultists, they're, they're believers. Yeah. And sincere ones and nice ones as far as we can tell, which is pretty unusual <laughs> in the history of cults. What I think of when I look at this is what if the Unarians actually caught on and became a full, you know, real faith with a lot of followers. And uh, they've sort of leveled up the kitschiness of the outfits, so they actually mm-hmm. look genuinely cool. But it seems like that same sort of actual, sweet, welcoming spirit, which just happened to have some UFOs in the mythology, is what's operating here. I mean, what else is operating here is that life in urban Brazil is pretty awful if you're poor and friendless. And if you can get to the valley or to a valley temple of the dawn, and there's 589 temples of the dawn, apparently, I assume most of them in Brazil, but they have temples overseas as well. U.S., Germany, U.K., Japan, Portugal are the examples that I ran across. And I assume that being in the temple of the dawn where you can eat and sleep for free and you have people, you know, caring about you and talking about your psychic damage is better than sleeping on the streets of wherever. And I think that that's, you know, the the contrast between, you know, even the worst parts of the Bronx and the Unarians is maybe not as stark as uh, the contrast in Brazil. And I think that also drives a lot of it. But, you know, still kudos to them for bringing people in to the extent that they can. That seems like the fundamental act of charity, which it is a little bit hard to suddenly turn around and say, bad aliens uh, done it. Right. Uh, I think. And in fact, I would rather, if we're going to use them in a fiction or a scenario or, or nod to them, to not put them in a Lovecraftian universe. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, the lesson of Lovecraft is that all religions are wrong and you're stupid because it's these horrible monsters or mm-hmm. the ones that are actually in charge. But some other supernatural universe, uh, which is a, a little more forgiving and in order to, you know, honor essentially these nice, kind, syncretic beliefs and, you know, acknowledge that they uh, have some power to use against the bad guys who aren't necessarily, you know, there's still, this is still a universe with bad guys in it. But yeah, there's still debt collectors and 
and demons and monsters. Exactly. And uh, the Brazilian ecosystem of religion is rich. It's full of deep lore, cool beliefs, mythologies, constructions. Uh, Candomblé itself is just a lifetime to study if you wanted to, plus the Church of Spiritualism, plus all the other variations on Catholicism that they've developed over the centuries in Brazil, plus all these new religions coming up. That environment is straight up, you know, any sort of occult adventure, I would say, rather than horror, is maybe the vibe you might want to go for. And sure, there's demons, and sure, there's monsters, and sure, there's bad stuff happening, you know, to uh, innocent kids and and, uh, poor people and, you know, wherever, but there's also a lot of uh, well-meaning magicians and and clerics uh, wandering about, and I feel like that sort of wild occult adventure is the vibe that you might want to go with these guys as opposed to as you say with a stark lovecraftian world or even a pure everyone except my religion is right and you're all demons sort of a way that uh, a dennis wheatley might do it i feel like you'd want to lean into the more eclectic theosophy uh nuzzling side of wheatley and say well if you're working with the white light and the and the good and and the right then you're pretty cool and your magic is probably neat and that, that sort of vibe is the one that you might want to go for. Right. And and this whole swirl of cultures that results in syncretic religion also results in syncretic music, syncretic food. And I, I think if you want to feature them at all, it's that sort of spirit of different cultures running into each other. And then, you know, at least some people getting along, because, of course, there's lots of bad things happening in, in Brazil for the good guys to fight. But I think this is uh, a, a fun group of people to either have your player characters or some of them hail from or to have them you know in league with your player characters so a rare wholesome note on which to end the description of a cult in the uh elliptony hut and therefore uh, i think on this you know spirit of uh, of good vibes it's time for us to head on out of this here podcast Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep our Pyramid Rest Center aligned by joining such celestially minded backers as... Thomas Edward. Dear Barefoot. James Tatum. Rich Spainauer. And Peter Adkison. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.